The dilemma of Pastor Erickson's trying to find meaning in a godless universe, or at least a universe where God will not answer, is hard to watch without personally taking on his existential dread. Bergman never blinks. He doesn't hand us any easy answers or life-affirming reassurances. It's grim. It's a great work of art. Those are words from cartoonist Seth on Ingmar Bergman's 1963 film, Winter Light. Seeing Faces in Movies is a podcast where each month I focus on the works of a different director or cinematographer, and each week I invite a guest on to discuss a film in the artist's filmography. I'm your host, Felicia Maroney, and today we're talking about Winter Lay. Very quick synopsis of the film is A Small Town Priest Struggles with His Faith. The film stars Ingrid Thulin as Marta Lundberg, Gunnar Bjornstrand as Thomas Eriksson, Gunnar Lindblom as Karen Persson, and Max von Sydow as Jonas Persson. It's written by Ingmar Bergman, cinematography by Sven Nickvist, directed by Ingmar Bergman, edited by Ulla Rieck, and music by Evald Anderson. So today my guest is Ben Vargas. You might recognize him from our episode on Women in the Dunes, and he's back again for Bergman Month. Well, this first of all, thanks again for coming back. I really appreciate yeah, you coming back. And talking about Winter Light with me. So I highly recommend people go back and listen to Women in the Dunes. If you haven't seen it, this is your chance to go watch it for the first time and listen to people talk about it. If you've seen anything in the past couple of months that you think the listeners and myself should really watch, let us know a couple of films that you think we should add to our watch list. So on the Silver Globe, mm-hmm. that is from the director of Possession. I will try and pronounce his name, but I might butcher it. Andres Zulowski, I think that's mm-hmm. how you say it. He's a Polish film director. And so he made this film 88, but I think it took like 10 years to be finished. The Polish government actually came in and burned a lot of the sets, the um, some of the film, a lot of the props. And so the finished product that you we actually are able to see now is missing about 30 minutes of actual footage. Oh, wow. So what they did in place of it was they had a narrator and they just had random film, like subway scenes or nature scenes or whatever it was that they decided to put in there. And they just explained what was missing. So it was very, it was very interesting. And it was it kind of was nice because the movie is very intense. So mm-hmm. it was kind of like a little bit of a break because you're just like hearing the explanation. Yeah. Um, but it's it's like if 2001 had a baby with name a Tarkovsky film because it's, oh, yeah. it's, it's like the most mind bending. The, the world is so big. And the fact that this movie is not like six hours long is absolutely insane. Um, I think the they wanted to have it be around three hours, but I think it ends up around two and a half. Okay. Cinematography is stellar. I mean, the world building is just for this movie to be made when it was on the budget that it had is mind boggling. I don't mm-hmm. I don't think there's a director today that could make this movie. 
on the budget that I did. Is um, this pre or post possession? Um, that's a good question. I, I should probably be looking this up myself, but it's so possession was in eighty one. Okay. So yeah, this would have been after. This was his his next film after that. That's cool. Highly, highly, highly recommend it. I have never seen anything quite like it in my life. So me and Seth just we, me and Seth and Jane watched it together and we were all just like staring at each other with like our mouth. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a rare, you know, rare thing for a movie to just like fully gobsmack you where you're like, I don't know what I watched, but I'm like amazed by it. As opposed yeah. to I don't know what I watched and I'm mortified that I spent, you know, two hours of my life watching it. Right. So yeah. No, that's cool. That's an interesting one. Um, and then the other one would be All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, mm-hmm. which was a 2022 documentary um, about an artist, Nan Golden. And she was a big activist. A lot of her work was um, centered around um, back in the 80s with the uh, AIDS epidemic. And then her after that, she took on the Sackler family, who is the... Um, the pharmaceutical dynasty who started uh, oxycotton and mm-hmm. uh, all those opioids that we are now all addicted to and so she actually was able to through her activism boycotts she was able to get most of the museums in the world to take away the wings that the sackler family had donated to they were a big art okay donator so like the guggenheim and mm-hmm. um, the med and major major museums all over the world so it was uh pretty inspiring the things that she's done so that's cool i don't know yeah. if you've seen uh have you seen anything by uh laura poitras no she did okay. citizen four which was the documentary about glenn greenwald and edward snowden oh okay okay no i I'm trying to get more, you know, on top of documentaries. I try and actively watch like a certain number a year um, Mm -hmm. just because like to get myself to actively watch them because it's not my Mm -hmm. go to right away. So I try and watch at least five to ten a year just to and I always love them, but I don't know why I don't, you know, gravitate towards them naturally. Uh, But I know that that all the. Beauty and the Bloodshed made like a huge uh, splash last year. So it's been on my radar to watch. But those are both great recommendations. We're talking about Amar Bergman today. And I know that you want to chat about Winter Light specifically. Do you recall the first time you watched this film and what your thoughts were on that first watch? Because we will get to the more recent watch and your thoughts on it. Because sometimes your mindset changes when you watch a film over and over again, but I was impressed with it, but I would say a film that hit me harder at the time was um, diary of a country priest by Robert Brisson. And Mm -hmm. that, that one was uh, pretty hard hitting. That's probably one of my all time favorite films. Yeah. And um, winter light, I think maybe when I first watched it, I wasn't really in the right mindset. I think to see it. Um, Mm -hmm. So obviously I enjoyed, you know, the cinematography and the direction. And it was cool seeing Max von Sydow in like a different type of role. 
Yeah. He's almost unrecognizable in this movie. You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of weird. No, like, yeah. He doesn't, it doesn't seem to be like fitting to a lot of the other stuff that he does. But this last watch definitely hit me a lot different. I think partially it's because, you know, with age, you experience different things and love and loss of love and um, loss of life and, you know, faith and the struggles with that. And um, watching this at different stages of your life would probably be. You know, watch it when you're young and then watch it when you're middle-aged and you'll probably have yeah. a much different perception of it. So I agree. That's what I've been finding over the course of this series. Is when I was in school, I would have watched a lot of Bergman stuff either in class or just on my own and like kind of ran through most of them. And some of them I revisited through the years. Like this one would have been one I revisited, but some of them... Just because he has such a huge filmography, I just hadn't gotten back around to. And seeing it, you know, as a late teenager, early 20s to where I am now, you know, fast forward 10 years, it's like completely different viewings because you've got age, you've got years, life experience behind you. And I think that's what makes his film so special that they can grow with you. And sometimes you grow apart or you grow closer to a film, whether you relate to it or not. So... I'm sure we'll get into that as well. But if you're ready, I'm ready to chat about the film itself. This is a very short film. I think it runs like it's under 90 minutes. It's very quick, straight to the point. And yet it's very heavily dialogue based and it's very embedded in religion. It's a man. It's several people struggling with their faith in Christianity. And that's going to hit people differently. It's for me, it's weird because I think I gravitate towards his more religious-esque films, despite the fact that I'm not religious at all. I did grow up going to Catholic school, but I since removed myself from that. But I think I always identify with those characters of being like, what caused you to question the way you grew up, right? Because when you're a kid, if your parents kind of push you into something, you don't know any better until you start learning things and you either you know, follow along with them or you start to question. So we've got Max von Sydow's character who's questioning just life in general. And then we've got the priest character who's also questioning his life. So how do you feel about kind of the way that the film tackles everyone's struggle with faith? Because everyone's approaching it indifferently and it's from start to finish, that's what this film is about. How do you feel about whether you are religious or not and approaching a film, watching a film that you may relate to and how do you relate to these characters? Yeah, I, I kind of feel like I'm all, well, you didn't mention Marta and mm-hmm. I I feel like I'm kind of a, a combination of the three of them Yeah, um, because I do deal with anxiety and the loss of control when it comes to things like Russia and Ukraine. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, the Israel situation or China never knowing what they're going to do or the Middle East. And we live in a society now where the information comes in at us constantly. And so it can be very, very overwhelming. So I definitely understand his side of it. And then um, so I grew up. I don't know if I mentioned this on the last one. I don't think I did. But uh, my dad is a pastor. So I grew up you know, in the church. And Mm -hmm. so I've seen 
a lot of really good things, but I've also seen a lot of really bad things. And so I think partially that's probably why this hits me differently is because part of, I think that there's a connection between man and faith or God. And I think a lot of times the things that we really struggle with is our loss in the belief that man is fallible. You know, Mm -hmm. like we set up ourselves to think that somebody is kind of like above reproach because we trust them and, you know, we, we want them to guide us and, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of help us along the journey of life. And then, you know, they let us down. And so I think a lot of times we associate that with, with God. And so, which I, I think is, it's a tough thing to like separate because I think a lot of people just automatically think that it's, you know, their faith when it's really that we've been let down by, by man and the people around Mm -hmm. us, there is that struggle. But then obviously, you know, if you do have any type of faith in any religion, you know, if we think that something should happen and that it doesn't, then we, it's easy for us to just say, well, you know, none of this is true. And to look at it from that standpoint. Yeah. But I, I don't think I've ever really looked at faith as like, like a magic eight ball. Like, you know, I'm going to get the answers or, you know, I'm going to wish for a car and then I'm going to get a car kind of thing. And I think that that's something that, you know, people do and they do that with anything. Like they do that with a job or a partner or whatever it is that they put that faith in. Cause we all have faith, whether it's in Mm -hmm. a God or a deity or, you know, we put it in a career or a person or our kids or whatever it is. Like faith is something that we all have in to some extent, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be religious. And so like, I also, you know, can relate to Tomas because he has felt that he has been, you know, he has that famous line where he's like, you know, God, why have you forsaken me? Mm-hmm. Which is like, it's really powerful because he's supposed to be like a man that's dedicated his life to God. And, you know, he's, he's questioning everything that he's done and up until that point. And then Marta, you know, I being hopeless romantic, definitely, yeah, uh, I, know. I definitely side with her a lot on things. And he's, he's so ornery and like, he makes me so mad because, you know, she's practically like throwing her herself at him. And he's just so unbothered by it. And it's like so frustrating to watch. It really is. Like, you don't get it, dude. Like, she literally will do anything for you. And you're just like, "Eh, whatever. Right. Well, okay. Let's, let's talk about that. Cause I also feel the same way. I'm just like, dude, like, she's already been taking care of you. And what's the, the deal? Like, I know that we're then told he, uh, previously married, the previous wife passed away. It's been a couple years at this point. So it's, I guess for him, it's still fresh, which is totally valid. That's totally fair. I don't I think, think Marta's four, pushing it. Has it been four? I think he said four years is what he okay. said. Yeah. Enough time, maybe not for him. Obviously not for him. Uh, whether it's enough time or not, he still seems to just kind of treat Marta like absolute trash and i think it's just so unwarranted because 
this is a woman who is just so pleasant and it's you don't need to love her right mm-hmm. it's okay mm-hmm. if you don't love her but <laughs> let her down a lot nicer than the way he did in this film <laughs> and it, it comes at a weird time and I, I really appreciate the way the film handles their whole relationship because right off the bat we can tell what the whole deal is and then we get that letter that he that she writes to him and I love the way that that's filmed when he reads the letter. Eventually, it switches to Marta reading the letter and she's reading it to us. And as I said earlier, like this is a very dialogue heavy film. Sometimes that can be heavy handed of just someone reading to you and you're like, okay, this is a lot now. But she's so compelling and you are like hanging off of every single word she's saying and you're following that story and you just feel for this woman. She's just a human being who's had like a rough time and she's really pouring herself out to him. And she knows that he doesn't love her, but she's still willing to offer her love to him. And it's so sad the way she puts herself out there because I think we all can relate to that. It doesn't matter who you are. You can relate to being in a position where you have loved someone more than they've loved you. It's just really sad to see that happen. And then there's the whole stuff with... Jonas, the Max von Sydow character, that happens and it just makes Tomas even angrier. So when he eventually faces Marta, we get the whole blowout where he's just so mean to her. Anyone who's listened to this before and you, I I don't usually go narratively, so we'll just jump from scene to scene. But like, how do you feel about, you know, the way Tomas handled Marta as it relates to what's happened to Jonas and his questioning of his life and his faith. Yeah. I didn't really see the connection between Jonas and Tomas and how he treats Marta. I mean, I mm-hmm. think that it definitely like pushes him further towards, you know, his unbelief and lack of faith. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that has a connection, at least for me. I didn't see that between. Mm-hmm. I, I think that a lot of what he's struggling with is the loss of his wife. Yeah. And, he's pushing her away probably because he doesn't want to love somebody again because he's afraid that that will just happen again. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is understandable. I I have never lost a loved one to death, but I would imagine that it would be pretty soul crushing. So it's understandable, but I also don't agree with how he decides to treat her in the meantime. Because, well, I guess I'll ask you this because I am torn. Do you think that he loves her or do you think that he just finds her as a nuisance? So as we were saying, like each time you watch a film and as you get older, your mindset changes. I always Mm -hmm. thought that he did, but he just was so upset with himself that he'd rather push her away and not include her, you know, have her be a part of his turmoil until he got his shit together essentially Mm -hmm. but on this most recent watch i was like i think that this man genuinely hates her like i don't think he likes her at all i think he's put up with her and because she's pushing it she he's now really like you need to get away from me that's the way i read it this watch of just like i don't think this man is interested in her at all (laughs) and it really was a lot to watch it really hurts to watch that just like right from their first couple interactions, I was like, oh, I could, I felt it like immediately. Whereas in previous watches, I didn't feel that. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know how you feel. Yeah, I think I think he appreciates her, but I definitely don't think that he loves her. I think that he's trying to push her away at every moment that he can. Mm-hmm. And it's sad because he's a difficult man. And for her to be so, she's so caring and loving, he just doesn't care. I think, I think he, in a lot of ways, doesn't think that he probably deserves it. Like he, I think he thinks he should be yeah. in like this constant state of grief over his, his wife, which I think is a normal, I think a lot of people probably fall into that. Like, why should I be happy when she's dead? But I also think that there is a point where you have to move on. Um, he's not like he's in his eighties and mm-hmm. he doesn't have like a life ahead of him. He still has a life ahead of him. So I think the connection between his loss and faith probably has a lot to do with his wife dying as well. You know, he probably is angry at God for taking her so early. And mm-hmm. I think that anything good in his life, he just looks at as like a, uh, like an annoyance basically, which is what I think he looks at her as. Yeah, very much. So, yeah. And it, it's hard to watch and it's hard to watch the way he handles it. But then part of me on this watch was kind of like as difficult it is to see that and for her to receive it. I'm like, I hope she just got the message right. And doesn't keep pushing. Cause sometimes mm-hmm. you need that rough break. Because she doesn't right. deserve that. And also, like, if he truly doesn't have any interest in her, then it's better for him to, like, just let her know. He could have been nicer, but, hey, that doesn't work with everyone, unfortunately. <laughs> doesn't seem to be working with Marta. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see that sort of love triangle, because it is essentially a triangle. He's still in love with his wife, right? And for it to be involved with the pastor... And she's a school teacher and a dead wife. That's a interesting storyline for a film. But something that's also kind of prevalent in this film is the characters feeling a sense of lack of control over their lives and what's going to happen in their lives, not only to them, but like outside of what they're able to control. So they're not able to control their daily lives along with stuff that you know, day-to-day that has nothing to do with them. Like, you know, the conflict in China has nothing to do with them day-to-day, but it does. It's like an overlooming thing that's happening that seems to have troubled Jonas to the point where he eventually ends his own life, unfortunately. Each character, if we're talking about the three central characters, are grasping onto control that they are losing. We got Jonas, who can't control what's happening in China. Because there's no way for him to control it. Tomas, who can't really control, you know, his grief over his wife or Marta and getting her to just back off or the members of his parish and what's going on in their lives. And then we've got Marta, who's unable to get the love of her life. So how do you feel about kind of that being something that we can all relate to and as it relates to these characters? Because... I think on the surface, it seems like it could be a lot. Like, no one's thinking about all these things. But, like, there are people in the, that we all know who are thinking about these things. Uh, whether, it's, you know, <laughs> yeah, <day>. yourself or <laughs> yeah. someone. 
this I think it's very relatable, but how do you feel about the way that the film tackles that? And again, such a short runtime to have all these people who have like a sense of dread. Yeah, it tackles some big subjects. And again, it doesn't really get super deep into them, mostly just probably because of the runtime, which I actually mm-hmm. appreciate. I mean, there are no quick answers. There's no lawn answers to any of these things, right? Like we could yeah. sit here and talk about uh you know me being scared of uh you know putin's you know shooting nuclear uh weapons at us but what is that actually going to do so you you live in this like you know constant fear that like we're just going to get annihilated at some point but does that actually you know is yeah. there anything positive that can come out of that and so like that overwhelming um dread of things outside of our control is is very relatable and then mm-hmm. with Marta, one of the scariest things about loving somebody is that it is completely out of your control because you really can only control the one side of it, right? So like, you know, with her, she has done everything that she can in her power to, you know, show him like, hey, I love you. I want to spend the rest of my life with you or whatever it is that she's, you know, saying to him. Yet she's vulnerable because at the end of the day if he doesn't love her back it doesn't matter what she does um and that's something that i think everybody can relate to yeah because if you're actually given all of yourself like she is then you know the letdown is obviously a lot harder than if you're just kind of being casual or you know mm-hmm. you know what i mean like you know it's easy to just wait around and accept good things but when you're unsure it's it's a hard thing to kind of throw out there yeah so yeah i i I find it to be all very relatable Mm -hmm. i mean yeah so do i i think it comes down to just the writing kind of a running thing throughout this this bergman series is that he wrote all of his own work which is Mm -hmm. you know as some he's known workaholic to have like that many films in your filmography and you've written mm-hmm. all of them alongside you've also are you know a playwright and doing your own you know stage productions as well but the characters are always very well-rounded and you can see the two sides to each of these characters and i feel like again this is dependent on the person you are i but i think i can see the rationale between both sides so with jonas he's got a ton of kids he's got a kid on the way and this man's struggling with stuff that's outside of his control his wife is worried about him she comes to tomas to say can you please help him just talk to him and see if you can get him to like maybe just not worry so much so that it consumes his life and Tomas does try and sit down and relate to him like he tries you know talks to him about his life and it's kind of a weird moment in the film where it's kind of funny because you can see Tomas is really struggling (laughs) to try and relate to this man and he's just telling stories about his life that really don't relate to anything and you can see Jonas is just sitting there like uh i don't think this is working for me mm-hmm. <laughs> i'd like to leave but you feel for both of them i feel for Tomas in that sec- that moment because he's just like what can i do to just kind of get you to sit here and think about something else so Jonas eventually takes his own life and you as a viewer are like 
Okay. I don't want to judge someone for making that decision if life is too hard for them. But then you get that shot after of him and his family when Tomas goes to to the wife to say, hey, Mm -hmm. this is what happened. And there's that looming shot of her inside with all the kids. And she has to now tell her kids that their father's not there. She has a kid on the way. She's going to be left alone. Bergman's always giving you both sides of things. You know, he's never really taking a side, at least to me. I don't know how you feel about that. Do you feel like he is judging any of the characters in this film? Or is he kind of trying his best to be neutral about it? No, I, I always I think that Bergman always does a really good job of showing, you know, the duality of man. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there is no one side. Life is not that cut and dry or, you know, black and gray. And so I don't think that he wants us to necessarily sympathize with the characters. He wants us to see both sides of it. And um, I always appreciate that about him. He doesn't ever really get preachy. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, he's not like trying to be like, there is no God and life is hell. And you know what I mean? Like he's showing both sides of it. Um, And even with Marta and her and like loving him and stuff, it's, you know, you, you, you get to see both sides. So I, I don't think he's taking sides. That's how, I, that's how I feel about all of his work, too, because this he's someone, you know, not dissimilar to yourself who grew up with a, a father who was also uh, obviously a pastor of some sorts. And yeah, he's a part of his kid. life and his internal struggles with faith. And that's obviously prevalent through his work because, mm-hmm. you know, write about what you know. and. I just love that he's never super heavy handed about things, despite the fact that his movies are quite heavy and depressing. This is a depressing movie. There's nothing uplifting about it. You know, it does not end on a happy note in any shape or form. No one really gets a good time out of it. And it takes place over a few hours of the day, right? It's just uh, like a very quick snippet of their lives. We don't know. We kind of, learn a bit about what happened before, but we don't know what's to come after that. And it doesn't really matter because they're not dissimilar to everyday people. Bergman shoots often black and white. This one's black and white. And I really love the way the film looks. As you said, the cinematography is great. I love the blocking in this movie. I love the blocking of Bergman films in general, but this movie is really great. There's some really great shots of just Jonas and his wife, and they're kind of just standing there talking to each other, but they're not facing each other. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about just kind of look at the film outside of, you know, the acting and the themes, just the way the film looks and the kind of haunting nature of it? Because it's like uh, a wintry day and mm-hmm. we don't even really know what time of day it is. We have to see it's like midday going on to nighttime bed. I just love the way the film looks. How do you feel about this one? Yeah, I I love that when he shoots in black and white, um, his use of shadows and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the darks. And I think that it's all very intentional, you know, good and evil. And I like in this movie, too, where he he doesn't really frame things in a way a lot of directors do where, you know, he'll have shots where he's focusing on the main person that we're supposed to be focusing on. But like, we'll just see like the backs of heads or like yeah. characters kind of standing to the side where it's like, I love it because it's very realistic, you know, like his films don't feel like fantasies. They feel like you can actually like live in them, 
which I think is something that he does very well. I also, one thing that I really love about this movie and that I noticed a lot more this time is the lack of music. There's really no music in yeah. any of it, mm-hmm. which is like a huge, I no country for old men. It's a great movie, but my favorite thing about that movie is that there's literally no music in the entire thing. Yeah. Because I, I, I think most music in movies, especially when it's dealing with something like this, kind of takes away from it. You know, like it's like the director's trying to hold our hand and say, this is how you're supposed to feel right now. And I think, you know, something as serious as this, I think that that would take away from that, that kind of overall feeling of dread. Now, I'm glad you said that because that's how I felt too. I don't know that I even noticed prior to this watch, the lack of score, but I really felt it this time. And it's, as you said, like in a film like this with another director, uh, another filmmaker, they probably would add score just to be like, this is how you're supposed to feel in this moment. Mm-hmm. This is the way, you know, the, this is the direction the film is going in. Instead of just being like, oh, you guys are smart enough to know. You make your own decisions on how you feel. Because we're not all going to feel the same way about certain things. Like You and I, just in this discussion so far. We can understand the way each other feels, but we might not have viewed it that way. And that's the way it should be. Like you should interpret things your own way because the characters in this film are interpreting each other their own separate ways. We see that with Marta and Tomas specifically, they're interpreting each other's intentions and, you know, thoughts on each other very differently. So I do appreciate the lack of score because. You really don't need it outside of like, there might have been, I think there's a scene maybe with a bit of organ music that's playing. Someone might be actually playing the organ, but that makes sense because they're... Yeah, it was relatable to the scene though. That wasn't... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like what you said is, I think a lot of directors use, manipulate score and music to kind of herd everybody into the same box. And I really appreciate directors like Bergman who, you know, they they realize that if 100 people watch it, they could get 100 different reactions to it. And to allow, you know, an audience to use their own intelligence and not be like, well, look, you know, this is, we have to explain everything. I I hate, I'm a very, I, I hate exposition, basically. Yeah. Like, I just feel like so many times it's just, it feels like, you know, you're trying to be like coddled and it's like, I don't know, yeah. it seems, seems wrong in a lot of it and a lot of films, but he doesn't really do that. Now, I don't know that he's ever been that way. And I think that's why some people kind of shy away from delving into his work because they think that they're maybe not intelligent enough to watch his films or they think that the themes are too philosophical or too religious for them to sit down and watch but i'm like one thing that i well i love many things about bergman but he has a couple longer films but usually he's very tight in his runtime it's very rare that you get a film that's over 90 minutes you put on a film you'll watch it and you're like it's finished you're like how did you manage to pack all of that in that runtime and it never felt like he was rushing through things Mm-mm. It never feels rushed, but it never feels slow. And you're like, there's so much information, so many themes that you tackled. And how do you, how does one do that? Because most people, it would take them four hours to tackle that. 
And they still wouldn't get to the point where he gets straight to the point without ever feeling rushed. So I just think we always talk about Bergman as filmmaker who tackles these things, but I think that people forget that he's also writing this. And I think that people should be actually studying his scripts. Uh, and I don't know how it is now because it's been a long time since I was in film school. We definitely were not studying his scripts. We were studying his films in terms of visually, but it's just like insane writing to me. One can only aspire to write one of his scripts, let alone the amount that he did. One of the last things that I, I wanted to bring up was this is part of kind of like a religious trilogy. Religion comes up quite a bit, but there's a bit of a trilogy that, that he made that's like a, they're not sequels, but it's like a mm. kind of a, so mm. there's Winter Light, Through a Glass Darkly, and The Silent. How do you feel this film fits? I don't know if you've seen the the films I'm talking, the other ones I'm talking about, but in general, how do you feel this film fits within his filmography? It's kind of in the middle. Like this is 1963. It's the same year as The Silence. Through a Glass Darkly was a couple years before this. It's kind of straight in the middle of all of his film. Um, I mean, I think it's kind of a, he obviously didn't plan it this way because I don't think mm -hmm. he planned out every film he was ever going to make in his life. Yeah. But I do think that, you know, it's kind of funny that this is in the middle of his career. And I feel like this is the type of movie that's going to hit you the most in the middle of your life. Even though I would like to think that he's probably capable of doing that because he's crazy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it, no, I mean, I think it fits into the rest of his work pretty well. Mm -hmm. Are there any other parts of the film that we haven't tackled that you want to chat about? No, I think we, I think we covered pretty much everything. This is a pretty, pretty concise. Uh, yeah, succinct. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I'm hoping the best for Marta. Tomas, hopefully he gets his shit together, but I'm really team Marta all the way. For sure, Team Marta. I I, I <laughs> hope that they uh, figure their shit out. But if not, I hope she moves on to somebody who's actually gonna, yeah, you know, let her love them the way that she's capable of doing. Exactly that. Well, I guess we can move on to the last portion of the show then, which is the end credits. So, if someone comes up to you and is like, "I want to get into Bergman," don't know where to start. They're looking for your recommendation. What film are you recommending to them? And what's your reasoning behind that recommendation? He's a tough one to recommend, I feel like. I, I feel like if you don't have some type of foundation in film in general, that he's not somebody to just kind of like throw yourself into. Yeah. But I think his most accessible film would be Persona. That's probably the film that I would recommend. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, do you have a do you have a reasoning behind that, or do you just think is it because that's probably his more? I think when people think Bergman, they think Persona, they think Seven Seal. So is that your approach on it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you. I guess you could start with Seven Seal, but I, I, I think Persona because I think Persona. You know, Persona could be a Hitchcock film. Persona could be mm -hmm. a Polanski film. You know, there's it's probably the most um, 
closest to like horror, I guess, you know, Um, in my opinion. So I actually usually connect that with um, Polanski's uh, Pulsion is the one that I somehow always connect that to. Oh, okay. I just feel like they have a similar vibe. Yeah. I mean, I could definitely, definitely see Repulsion with being a good, you know, double bill even. With With Persona? Yeah. We'll get into the Winterlight double bills, but I usually, so with this one, I struggled. I will have said it probably over the course of a few episodes, what my initial recommendation would be. The first Bergman I ever saw was Cries and Whispers, oddly enough. And then I saw, you know, the Persona of Seven Seal. But my, on this go around of rewatching a few of his films, my go-to has been like, if I was to recommend a film that I think would be accessible and would lead you down to various Bergman paths, I would pick Wild Strawberries. Because mm. I think that's a pleasant enough film. But it can get, it gets dark. Not winter-like mm. dark. It doesn't get as dark Virgin as... Virgin Spring mo- dark. <laughs> yeah, Virgin <laughs> Spring, I'd have to like, oh. I'd have to either know you so well that I know you could handle it right off the bat. Or I just straight up hate you. Where I'm like, yeah, watch Virgin Spring. It's going to, you know, it's going to ruin your day. Virgin Spring is such an insanely rough watch. Like, oh my well, so God. you know that that's what um, Last House on the Left is what it's based on uh, mm-hmm. Virgin Spring. Yeah. It's, it's not fun. No. <laughs> it's not a good time. It's a beautiful film, but I've only... I want to say I might have only seen it once. And mm-hmm. I think there's been enough time that I definitely would watch it again. But the first time I watched it, it was definitely just going through his filmography and being like, yeah, Virgin Spring sounds good. And being like, oh, now I need to like go to sleep for the rest of the day yeah. because I'm yeah. sad. <laughs> it's it's very rough. Yeah. This one's not as rough. Winterlight is not as rough. It's rough in a different way. It's rough in a different yeah. way. Yeah, it is. But yeah, I think Persona would be a good spot. Yeah. It's entirely dependent on the person. But second question, double bill. So the idea of religion, you know, and lack of faith, the struggling of faith is not new. It wasn't even new when Bergman was doing it. If you're going to pair this film with another film, film or films, what would you pair them with? And what's the the thematic reasoning behind the pairing. So for me, this was an easy pick. I knew instantly Mm -hmm. what I was going to pick. And I think the reason why is because, okay, so I think a modern kind of version of Bergman, you know, except for kind of like the U.S. version of him is Paul Schrader. Paul Schrader actually has a degree in religion. And he, he, yeah. He actually wanted to be a, a, a priest or a pastor at some point in his, you know, early career. Yeah, I mean, I his early life. <laughs> and well, I mean, yeah, if you look at the subjects yeah. that he tackles, it's it's not doesn't seem that far fetched. But for me, First Reformed is like the modern equivalent of Winterlight in a lot of ways. Yeah, especially mm-hmm. with the connection between uh, global warming. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the fear of, you know, China and nuclear war and things like that. So, you know, it's funny because I was watching this and I was like, wow, this is 
this film is still so relatable. And yeah. if it wasn't in black and white, it could be made today and you'd have mm-hmm. no there's like you know what I mean? Like it's it it's it's ageless, which I actually feel like a lot of Bergman films feel that way because there's such a it's such a like succinct slice of life that it doesn't really get into like what do they do for work or you know what I mean? It's yeah, just, exactly. It's, it's, he tackles the subject. It's very relatable. It's it's something that you could put yourself into that situation, and it doesn't matter what country, what mm-hmm. time frame, even class isn't really like. I mean, there are. I mean, obviously, Fanny Alexander mm-hmm. class and things like that. But like, I would say overall, it's a pretty like blank slate where you could kind of just put it into any era or any nationality or and it would work so yeah so yeah first reform for me would be um yeah <laughs> that movie destroyed my soul oh my god it bro- did you I, see it yes yeah okay because that was also on my list so i can look up the actual year of when that came out so i was first i was still in california so i think it was 2017 yeah. It was in that came out. So I would have seen it. I didn't see it when it came out in the cinema. I think I saw it a couple of years later and kept hearing. It's weird that I didn't see it right away because I love Ethan Hawke and I like Schrader. Mm. But I definitely saw it a couple of years later and just people being like, oh, it's, you know, it's pretty intense. And maybe like, yeah, okay, we'll see about that. Mm. <laughs> and <laughs> they put a, it that's on. An <laughs> right. I put it on. I was like, um, I wasn't prepared for any of this and it really had a full like full body effect on me where I was like Mm -hmm. I feel kind of somewhat catatonic right now because I wasn't expecting it to go this far it's yeah as I've said this before on the show and in real life where I'm just like yeah I'm sure we both agree like the Oscars really are trash and really don't mean anything Mm -hmm. despite the fact Mm -hmm. that we still pay attention to them like I will not lie I do still pay attention knowing that they're fully trash but I'm like in what world would you not think this is not like the greatest film of that year I don't remember what else came out that year I'm sure there was other great ones but it's wild that that didn't get more recognition I will forever be upset that Hawk didn't win the Oscar. Ugh. He didn't, he wasn't even nominated, which was disgusting. Right. It's disgusting. Yeah. Like, look, I looked at the list recently because I, they, uh, do you listen to a podcast called Screen Draft? I know of it, but I haven't, okay. I haven't ever listened to it. They did one where First Reformed was talked about and they were talking, oh, it was an Oscar one. And they were talking about how, you know, Hawk didn't get nominated nominated and they gave the list and i was just like he's literally better than everybody on this list yeah it's just crazy to me and it's it also feels like an oscar role like i remember watching it and being like he's gonna win the oscar for this or he'll you know at least get nominated and then when it came out i was like wow that seems yeah but i'm not sure how the academy thinks about paul schrader i think he's kind of on the outside looking in yeah i think he's too vocal and they're like, we're too scared to touch him. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think Forest Reform would is a great pairing. I have a funny story about First Reform. So I saw it in okay. the theater. It was just me and uh, my girlfriend at the time and one other guy. 
So we're watching it. And I remember I like looked over at the other guy a couple times and he was just like, like you said, comatose. Like he was just like in shock. And so we were the only three in the theater. We walked out to basically an empty parking lot because it was the last showing of the night. We get in our cars at the same time. We leave at the same time and we drive home in the same direction. So this road has a ton of lights and okay. we hit every single red light and he was next to us at every red light and i remember looking over at him and he just had this blank <laughs> for literally 25 minutes we followed each other for 25 minutes and he never made any emotion he just was like he was like like catatonic and i I don't think we talked the entire ride home and I was just, I was a fucking mess for like days after that movie. Yeah. I don't usually have that like visceral type of reaction to movies. Like I'm able to kind of like separate myself from, you know, whatever mm -hmm. the subject is, but that one just, it was just so intense and so in your face and like you, you couldn't help but be like pulled in to this character so as, as, as depressing as Winter Light is, I think First Reformed is, is even worse. Yeah. For me. It is. It is because I think it's basically the same film, but because of the way the world has changed since the 60s, mm -hmm. and it's relating to that time because it's in, you know, the 2000s, so I assume it was the same time that it was filmed would have been like 2016, 2017, and what's happening in the world there. And it's weird to see that there are things that have not changed, and then there are things that have vastly changed. Mm -hmm. So it was just a degree, like you said, which I, what I love, you said that a lot of Bergman's films, like, they could be from any era, right? We mm -hmm. wouldn't know that this is from the 60s. And that's great. It's very rare to be able to have that. And then First Reformed, I think, will eventually could also be that relatable to future eras. But at the time, it was very relatable. Um, First Reformed was also online. But then I had a few other ones that are all kind of like, not the same type of movie, but dealing with the same thing. Uh, another one was Night of the Iguana, which is John Houston, 1964, which would have been released a year after Winter Light. And it's um I haven't seen that. It's my second favorite John Houston, right after Fat City. This is Richard Burton, Ava Gardner, and Deborah Kerr. Mm -hmm. And Richard Burton plays a priest who's gotten himself into some trouble and he's an alcoholic and he's kind of been kicked out of you know, he's been kicked out of this job essentially. Mm -hmm. for just being a shithead and he's holding on to it and he's being reckless it's a great time especially if you're a richard burton fan i love richard burton it, it sounds like every movie that you love from back <laughs> i was called that recently they're like you just love uh, movies about men who are problematic and having a hard time and i was like yes <laughs> you you love movies with hot men who are extremely damaged and unfixable. <laughs> Which is like, it's so telling of, of me as a person. I was like, yeah, that's mm. my go-to in life. I want damaged 
as all hell and me struggling to fix this person. It's really bad, and I would not recommend it to any listener. Don't live a life like that. Two others that'll kind of rapid fire. So there was The Devil Probably, uh, which is Bresson 1977. This is also a cast of kind of younger people who are dealing with struggle of faith and just kind of, it's kind of like a film of dealing with existentialism, but also faith in Christianity. Uh, I don't love that movie, but I think it's really interesting. It's not my favorite Paisan, but I think it's a really interesting film to watch. I surprisingly have not seen that, and I'm a huge Brisson fan. It's It was difficult to find. It's now, currently, as we're speaking on the Criterion channel. Um, oh. Hopefully, as this airs, still will be on the Criterion channel. I know they recently put it on, but I watched it, I think, for the first time last year, because it was so difficult to find. Mm-hmm. It's a Definitely an important watch, and I think it's interesting. It's not my favorite, but I think it's really interesting to watch. The last one might be another obvious one, but it would be Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ. I had was avoiding watching that one for a long time because I thought it was going to be like just straight up the story of Jesus type right. of deal, and I just wasn't up for it. So a couple of years ago, I finally was like, okay, it's time, and it blew my mind. And it's mm. one of my favorite Scorsese films ever. It's so trippy. Like, I mm. could not believe it blew. I, I was, it's kind of the same way I felt about First Reform, where I was just like, what in the hell is happening in this movie? Mm-hmm. Um, it would be a weird double bill with Winter Light, but I think, and I'm trying to figure out what would be, I think you'd have to start Winter Light and end with. I um, think you'd have to start with Winter Light. Yeah. Once you watch. Last Temptation of Christ, so you can't go to this? No. You'd be like, "We're. I need to now just think about this forever. You can't watch anything after that, but... Crazy story about that. Apparently, he wanted Nick Cage. As Jesus. Jesus? (laughs) And he turned it down, apparently. I think we would have gotten a much different movie. Yeah. I mean, I I think Willem Dafoe is great, but... Defoe oh, I still want to watch it. Defoe is great because I think he, not that Nick Cage wouldn't have understood the assignment. I think he would have understood and be like, okay, well, I'm still going to do my own thing, though. Whereas Defoe, mm-hmm. I think, fully understood the source material mm-hmm. that was adapted into this film. That's a great movie. And I know people who straight up hate it. And I know people who really are like, this is this is a wild film to have in your filmography. So I'm not necessarily a Scorsese fan. I don't mm-hmm. like my top five Scorsese's are typically not on other people's lists because I don't really love like the crime stuff or the mafia. Not stuff. Not do I. Um, my favorites are Bring Out the Dead, Last Temptation mm-hmm. of Christ, After Hours, um, yep. Raging Bull, King of Comedy. Those mm-hmm. would be like the ones that I gravitate towards. I just. I love that Scorsese was like made decided to make that movie because he knew that he was going to get so much backlash for it. And yeah. yet he still he still took it on, which is a really bold choice when you think about it. Like most I think most directors who I mean, at that point, I feel like he could have he didn't have to make a movie like that, right? Like he could have just kept on his career trajectory and, you know, not taken that chance. But I love that he did and 
you know, I mean, obviously he grew up Catholic and his parents are religious. And so like, and he clearly loves his parents. So like, it's like kind of a crazy choice. I'm really glad that he did it because I, I, I love it. Same. I mean, I agree. Most of the crime stuff, it's like, we're both on Twitter a lot and you know, your top five Scorsese comes up. And I often got get shit for being like, how is it that like Goodfellas is not on your top five? I'm like, I do like that movie. It's just not in my top five at all. Like the ones that you mentioned, Age of Innocence would be up there too. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, that film in general, it's just wild that he made that movie. And (laughs) I just, I love it. But yeah, I think that was Ingmar Bergman's Winter Light. Thank you so much, Ben, for coming on the show and talking to me about it. I had a great time talking about a really depressing film. Yeah, I was pretty intimidated to do this one, actually. I didn't feel like I was uh, capable of talking about Bergman, but I think we did okay. Why not? You you did a great job. You brought a lot of great insight and like personal stories to it, too, which I appreciate. And I was lucky enough to also be on your show, Cinema Shit Show, which oh. I had a great time <laughs> being on, and I can't wait to be on again. I also can't wait to have you on this show again, if you'll come on for a third time. I know I've had you on twice, and you might be tired of it, but I'd love to no, have you on uh, again. I want to come on and talk about another very depressing uh, director, and Michael Hansen. Please. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of his, so. I mean, as you know, I also, that's my man. Love him. Seeing Faces in Movies is an official podcast of the Royal Film Club. It's hosted and edited by Felicia Maroney with intro music by the Matt Walker. If you like what you heard, let us know at seeingfacesinmovies.com or send us an email at seeingfacesinmovies at gmail.com. And while you're at it, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcast. And thank you for joining us for our Ingmar Birthday Month. The air is still in the silence of my room. I hear your voice softly calling. 